Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning again. Good to see you on this uh, rather chilly uh, day as we approach the month of May. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in uh, the book of Jonah. My name is Joel, by the way. I'm one of the pastors. If you are new here or if you're watching from home, I uh, would love to get to know you a little bit better. So glad that you've joined us. There's a blue card, actually, if you're in the building that's in front of you. And if you can fill that out for us and just drop it in the offering plate when it passes at the end of the service, that's actually the most effective way we have uh, to just get in touch with you. I promise we don't drop over unannounced. Uh, we certainly don't expect a meal or anything like that, but we just want to get to know you and pray for you. And so if you can do that, we'd greatly appreciate it. We've been in the midst of a series moving through the minor prophets, 12 men at the latter part of our old Testament teaching us how to repent. The title of this series is turn, which is the meaning of repent. Uh, and when you turn, you typically do you not turn from one thing and toward another. And so we recognize through scripture and also through our own life experiences that there are various ways in which we sin, sin against God, sin against each other. And so there are, you would expect as a result of that, various ways that God offers us to turn. And so we've been looking in the minor prophets at all of these ways that God is calling us to turn. He points at something that's not good in our lives. He points towards something that might lead, as we read in Obadiah last week, toward our own destruction. And he urges us in a loving way to come back to him, to turn from that thing to something else. Today we're going to talk about the shift and the turn from hatred to love. And it's one of the hardest paths to repentance. And, and that's not unique for our age, although our age certainly has its challenges these days. Uh, but it's interesting, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you read what, what our Jewish neighbors call the Shema. It reads like this in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay, so that grounded our Jewish neighbors for centuries until the coming of Jesus. And then Jesus not only reemphasizes that, but he adds something to it in Matthew 22. He says this, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is the first and greatest commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says something profound. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the whole law, according to Jesus, is summarized in these two separate commands that are inseparable. Love God, love your neighbor. Ought to be simple enough, right? Except that Luke's account of this story adds a question from a young attorney who has started this back and forth with Jesus uh, to begin with. And it's this question, who is my neighbor? And it's that story that prompts one of the most popular stories in the Bible. The parable, even if you're not a Christian, you probably heard of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus tells that story to us. It's a story that we read 2,000 years later and it gives us the warm fuzzies. But I gotta tell you, it made Jesus' original audience wretch. And the reason for that is because of the hero of the story. Jesus takes someone who is one of the most despised 
in all of first century Judea and makes that individual the hero of the story. The most hated group of people were the Samaritans. And so that whole parable was Jesus' way of saying, think of the person who to you is most undesirable, most offensive, most repulsive. That person is your neighbor. Love them as yourself inseparably along with your love for God. And so this entire story is a repudiation both of the attorney's question and of the obvious prejudice behind it. And so this whole account is Jesus' way of saying to this young attorney, you know what, what's coming out of your mouth on the surface sounds like a reasonable question, but the heart that is motivating that question actually has hatred in it. And so the call to repent, among other things, is a call to turn from hatred to love. And, and here's what makes that particular account in the New Testament significant and relevant to our discussion today when we're looking at Jonah. The Samaritans, as a group of people, actually emerged way back before Jonah. They came about as a result of an intermarriage between Israelites and their Assyrian captors. So these, these people would come in and conquer, and then they would not just take goods. They would not just take military equipment. They would take women, right? And, so, and then they would, they would have children with these women. And the Samaritans were the result of that conquering and, and subsequent intermarriage between the Assyrian captors and the Israelite captives. And so there was some prejudice there. There was some racism in the midst of that. Jonah, in this story, is called to Nineveh, the capital city of the country that started all of that. So you're starting to see the kind of the, the bad stuff, the, the really bad history that's, that, that is, is creeping up here as, as Jonah receives this call. But by the time Jesus steps up to tell this story to a young lawyer, the Jews had been in possession of these lessons for nearly 800 years. Because for eight centuries, they had had possession of the prophecy of Jonah. So here, here's, here's my big idea in all of this. This is a lesson that we have to learn over and over and over, and it's not unique to us. Okay? Race is a pretty touchy subject these days. Prejudice in general is a pretty touchy subject these days. It, it is apparently, in our culture, one of the worst things you can call somebody. But, but one of the things that we, we learn from Jonah is that we're not unique in that, and that this is something that happens over and over and over and over. Every single one of us has biases, conscious and unconscious. That doesn't make us evil people. That doesn't make us malevolent people. Sometimes it makes us tone-deaf people. Sometimes it makes us ignorant people. And then sometimes it can descend into a, all of those people are like that, all of that group are like that. That's what Jonah is facing. And so Jonah himself, the prophet, this isn't just about his message to Nineveh. This is about his own sanctification as well. Now, Jonah's a contemporary of Amos. He hails from Gathafair. It's about five miles outside of Nazareth, which itself is about 90 miles or so north of Jerusalem, and he preaches during the reign of Jeroboam II. And for all we know, he was a faithful prophet, obedient to the Lord, obedient to the Lord's message, up until we get to chapter 1 and verse 1 of this prophecy. And we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This is where the problem starts, at least in, in Jonah's heart. Now, here's the thing about hatred. It never occurs in a vacuum. 
And in this instance, we, can, we need to be introduced to a little bit of the history behind the animosity because for years up until this point, Assyria's kings had been known for their absolute cruelty. They would move into a country. They would scatter the people. They would literally split up husbands and wives, split up parents and children, intermarry with the women. They would take the heads of their captors and stack them up in pyramids at the entrance to every city they conquered as a way to say to any other surrounding nation, don't mess with us. This is how fierce we are. These are the, the people that we have conquered. Look how powerful they were. We're more powerful than that. The way they treated prisoners of war. The, the hatred was understandable, in other words. You, you ever had somebody hate somebody? Or maybe even you, you fought this animosity towards another person. And when somebody heard your story and they heard the way you were treated by that person or by perhaps that group of people, you're like, man, it was understandable. Right? I get it. It's still sin. I told you this is going to be a hard one. Yeah, this one's tough. This one's tough. It's understandable, but it's still a sin. God has something better for you. He has something better for me. He has something better for this prophet. And Jonah's short biography, I've, I actually did a four-part series on Jonah before. I may do that at at some point in the near future. But this, this very short biography describes a path from hatred to love, and it presents this big idea. 99 plus percent of all conflict, all conflict, is not ideological, political, cultural, linguistic, or even theological. It is relational. It's, it's just simply between me and another person. Whatever our differences, you, you, you want to know that? Some of, some of my best friends in the world are Muslim imams. I think they're going to hell. They believe I'm going to hell. And some of the people that I have to work the hardest to love are Baptists that I agree with on most things. You, 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 you picking up what I'm putting down? All right, we've all got people like that. You know, in my ideological circle, in my religious circle, in my political circle, there are people I can't stand. Well, that's a relational problem. Most of this is about being relational. And it's connected at heart to prejudice. And this is one of those unpleasant truths. Scripture tells us every single one of us perpetuates prejudice and Every single one of us are victims of prejudice. Now that, I don't even know why that's controversial today. But it is. Because nobody wants to be accused of that. And it makes this form of repentance both the hardest part of God's law, but also the most accurate acid test of how we're doing spiritually. Martin Luther reminds us that the whole of a Christian life is one of repentance. It's an ongoing enterprise. That fact is no more evident than in how we treat, or how we struggle actually, to treat each other, especially when they are viewed as the other, some other individual, some other group. And so there's some principles in this story to help us in daily repentance from hatred to love, okay? And we've all got it against somebody, right? So some of you, it's a category and you're locked into a category, like there's a lot of a lot of stuff about race right now around our kids. Well, are you calling us all racist? No, I'm, I'm calling you all prejudice. That's different. You can be prejudicial against anything. I am, I confess today, prejudicial against the Department of Motor Vehicles. I am. 
I go in there expecting to be treated subhuman. I just do, right? That, what is that? That's a prejudice. Wait, wait a minute. No, Pastor Joel, that's the truth. Actually, no, it's not because the last four times I've been in there, I've, I've received stellar customer service. I, I am not lying to you, I promise. If you haven't been in there a while, maybe go check it out. I don't know. I don't know what's happened. I don't know. Have they, have they given them? Have they all been? Are they on their meds now? I don't know what's going on. But it's different now. It's different. But you know what? Every time I have to make, all right, July's coming up. I got a tag due on one of the cars. I'm going to try to do it online if I can. But you know how it is. Sometimes you just got to go in. And if, it, if it's determined that I'm going to have to go in, my wife's going to look at me and go, grumpy. Why am I grumpy? Because the DMV, the last four times you were there, they weren't there. They weren't that way. Yeah, but, you know, they're the DMV. That's prejudice, right? That's a, that's a, bias. That's a conscious bias in my life. Now, how do I get rid of that? How do I get rid of it? Well, one way might be for the DMV to get their act together, right? I mean, let's just be honest. But another way has to do with my own heart. Whatever I'm in control of. I, I, I mean, I can't control what goes on outside my heart, but I, I can. And by the Holy Spirit's influence, I should control what happens on the inside of my heart. So let me, let me give you these four principles that will help you get there. Principle number one is this. An aversion to God's image is an aversion to God. An aversion to God's image is an aversion to God. To God. And we learn that from the narrative in Jonah. People are created in God's image. And so when you avoid, when you despise, when you marginalize, you, you can't separate that from your relationship to God. Chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Did you notice that? He's not just leaving the people, he's not just going in the opposite direction from the way God told him to go. He's leaving the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going down to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So when you respond to God's call to another people with rebellion, you're not just leaving them. You're leaving the God, or at least trying to leave the God, in whose image they are created. Love God, love your neighbor. You cannot separate the two. And every time you try, you find yourself at odds, not just with your neighbor, but, but with your creator. And here's what's stupid about the whole thing. Jonah had all the money and all the resources he needed to run from Nineveh, but he couldn't escape God's presence. All right? I'm going to run from people. That means, I'm, that means inevitably I'm going to run from God. But wait a minute. I can't run from God. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. You see, we, we have this term called omnipresence, and we use it to describe the God of the Bible because that's true of him. There is nowhere in this universe that he does not exist. He's everywhere. You cannot run from a God who is everywhere present. And when it comes to people he's created in his image, he will not let us escape our duty to tell to those people any more than we can escape his own presence. That's true today as well. There's a woman that the uh, Southern Baptist Convention celebrates every year. Her name is Annie 
Armstrong. She was a Baltimorean. She grew up in the late 19th and the early 20th century. She was an advocate for missionary work all over the globe. And when, when people in her native Baltimore began to complain in the early 20th century because uh, Little Italy, who's been to Little Italy? Amazing food, right? Can you imagine that there was actually a time when the native Baltimoreans did not want the Italians moving into that city? But that, that's what was happening. There, were, there was all this, 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 this migration into the city of Baltimore. And there were all these people saying, well, look at all these people. and We don't want them here. And why are they here? You know what Annie Armstrong's response was? She said, it's because we were not obedient enough to God in sending the gospel to the world. So now that God has brought the nations to our shores. Ray Bakke, the urbanologist, says it well right here and right now today that it was once true that you would go to the nations and you would find the cities, but now you go to the cities and you find the nations, all right? So whether it's D.C., whether it's wherever it might be, all right, that, that's what you find. Now you go to the cities and you find all the nations. God is setting up the world currently in an in a way that is inescapable for us to encounter people who are not like us. And some of that is because he wants them to hear the greatest story in the world. And some of it is he wants to wrench out some bad assumptions that we might have about those, about those people. And so he's going to do both. And the story of Jonah is a reminder that when God has called us to serve a people, that call is inescapable. And when you try to run from it, you're actually running from God. And, and I mean, honestly, how foolish can you be that to try to run from a God who's everywhere? The sailors hosting Jonah finally throw him overboard. The sea immediately calms down. I mean, what if, you, what if Jonah had just been obedient in the first place? Let me ask you this question. Who do you just not want to be around? Think about who that might be. Who is it? Wait, is, there, is there an area that you don't like to be? I, I, we had a family come into the church once, and after about, after about, I don't know, three or four weeks, I was getting to know them a little bit better. This is, this is five, six years ago, and, and, and they're, they're no longer here, and I'll tell you why. It's because they, they actually remarked that, well, there's, 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 there's some bad stuff in Shepherdstown. And I'm like, okay. Well, there's bad stuff everywhere that there are people. I mean, there are. There are. Yeah. There's immorality. Yeah. I imagine there's probably a little bit of that in this room right now. I mean, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, but, you know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there just is. Well, there's all this spiritism, there's this, there's that, there's the other. There's, yeah, of course there is. It's all over the world. What, what are you doing? Like, what? what? Well, I don't, we're not going down there. And I thought to myself, they're not only not going to last in this church, they're probably not going to last in this area. All right? Because you, you can't just wag your finger at people all the time about all the stuff they shouldn't be doing. Especially when you got sin in your own stinking heart. That's what's going on. So we got to ask ourselves, what's happening? Where are the people that I have this natural kind of inclination to go, no, I don't want to be there. 
And, and is God calling me not only to share with them the love of Jesus, but actually to build up the love of Jesus in my own heart as a result of that encounter? Because as long as that aversion is there, it's going to cause a corresponding rift in your relationship to God. It will. Well, now I don't know why God's not answering my prayers. I feel like everything's like I can't connect. Well, you're not connecting with people made in his image. What in the world would make you think you're able to connect with him? Here's the good news. God always provides a way back to him. That's principle number two. A return to God is a return to his call. Verse 17 of chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, so often this story is told as though that fish is just like, you better be careful, you better not run from God the way Jonah did, or you're going to end up getting swallowed by a fish or a whale, or whatever that thing was. But actually, if you look at this story, this fish is not judgment. It is grace. Without this fish, Jonah drowns in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, and this is a really, really short story. All right? God told a man to do something. He said no. He ran. God drowned him. God killed him. End of story. Which, honestly, Jonah deserved. But that's not what happens here. All right? Without this truth... That's what happens. But this fish is God's instrument of redemption, and it is in the belly of this fish that we find Jonah laying hold of God's forgiveness and restoration. In chapter 9, chapter, I'm sorry, in, in verse 7 of chapter 2, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And by the way, he's not talking about the other sailors on the boat. He's talking about himself. Because his own theology got so messed up that he actually thought he could run from the God that he claimed to worship. He had become the idolater in that moment. Those who regard vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Every bit of this is an act of God's grace. The fish, can you imagine how it smelled in there? It's God's grace. God's grace doesn't always feel pleasant. Sometimes grace is, grace is merely giving you what you don't deserve. A path back to him is something you don't deserve. It's something I don't deserve. But when he pre prescribes that path, it's not merely to come back to him. It's to make us better along the way. And sometimes that hurts. Sometimes that stuff really hurts. And sometimes it smells like fish guts. In, in this particular situation, you begin to see. And, and, and I'm telling you all of that because this is what happens when you cheapen grace. All right, when you think grace is no more than, all right, I'm done. I said I was sorry. No more penalty. Everything just goes right back the way it was. You, you, not only is that not grace, but you miss in the process the transformation that grace is intended to provide. It smells like fish guts sometimes. All right, this is how you know where someone's heart is. All right, you sin, someone sins against God, they rebel, they get themselves into trouble. The, they answer their, we answer their call, the pastors, deacons, other people, fellow brothers and sisters in small groups. You know, we're going to walk alongside you through the next step. And then you, you discover their disposition is simply to avoid as many consequences as possible. I don't have somebody in front of me who wants grace in that moment. I have someone who wants affirmation. 
in that moment. I have someone in front of me who wants enablement in that moment. You're not ready for God's grace until you find yourself where Jonah was, surrounded by all manner of unpleasant things and simultaneously caring about nothing except your restoration with the God who created you. That's the story inside the belly of this fish. And the greater story still is this. Verse 10 of chapter 2 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Yeah. Jonah said he was sorry. Fish threw him up on the beach. That's awesome. But God is saying here, now, now I know you will go where I send you. And now that I know that, I'm going to set you free to go there. A return to God is a return to his call. So often, he's like, okay, now here's where you were when you rebelled. And you got all the way over here. All right, Grace is not bringing you here just out of the unpleasant stuff. It's bringing you back here so you can do what I told you to do in the first place. Because it's good for you. All right? A return to God is a return to his call. And in this story, that call is a call to love the people that Jonah's own tribe, Jonah's own culture, Jonah's own, own nation was telling him it was okay to hate. So that reveals a third principle, because the way we overcome that is by submission to God's plan. You overcome hatred, not, not by trying to find all the good things in that person that you have all these bad prejudices about or that group of people, but, but simply by complete submission to the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This time he's moving in the right direction, but even at this point, sometimes God needs to grant us the grace to read our Bible slowly because we'll, we'll gloss over and therefore miss something. I want to point one of those somethings out to you here. Jonah's moving in the right direction, but he doesn't understand even exactly what he's saying. Here's why. Because there's this ever so slight difference in the Hebrew language that even isn't even really picked up by the ESV, which is the translation that I'm using this morning. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, cry against the city. But in chapter 3, verse 2, this call comes again and he says, cry to the city. If you have a Christian standard Bible, it will say cry against in chapter 1 and preach the message I tell you in chapter 2. Now, why is that? Because there is a difference. Although in the Hebrew language, it's not even a word difference. It's a one-letter difference. But that one difference makes all the difference. It means even as Jonah is moving through this city and beginning to preach, he doesn't even understand the full impact of his words. I tell our pastoral residency guys this a lot. Uh, to anybody that we train to teach here in a small group, as I tell them that a lot, God's word has a life of its own. And when you turn it loose, you're going to have people on occasion come to you and maybe it, most of the time it's through thanking you for something you said and you don't remember saying that thing. Like you don't, you don't get it. I was absolutely scared to death the first time someone came up to me and said, thank you so much. That was such a powerful message three weeks ago, and God spoke to me, and I know what I need to do now. I quit my job last week, and I went, you did what? 
you know, because you kind of feel responsible for that sort of thing. And, and so for preachers and teachers, it behooves us to be careful as a result of that. But then the other side of that is when we're faithful to God, often he'll show up and he'll say things to people and those people will react in ways that you don't realize and then they'll tell you, God spoke to me through that and here's what God told me and it'll freak you out just a little bit. Speaking from experience here. I know he speaks through his word, but that's scary. That's what's happening here because Jonah's message, and there's a succinct summary of it here, is 40 days and Nineveh shall be, now most English translations have the word overthrown, but let me, let me tell you, that's less of a translation, more of an interpretation of meaning. Because if you remove that word from all context, and Hebrew, the thing about the Hebrew language is context dependent. Very rarely can you look at a single Hebrew word and actually know precisely what it means until you look at the context around it. Literally, this word just means to be turned over, turned around, or released. So it can mean something bad. It can mean something really good. It's one of those words that sits on a tightrope and the, the slightest little contextual suggestion can nudge it this way or that way. It's, it's, it's kind of like the word surprise, okay? If you have a birthday coming and your spouse or your significant other, your family has planned a, a party for you and they haven't told you about it and this afternoon you, you think you're going uh, back, to, back home to relax and watch a movie, but when you get there, there's 40 other people in this room that are there, and they're waiting on you, and you are surprised, okay? Or on your way home today, the car breaks down, and two days later, the mechanic tells you it's going to cost $3,000 to fix it, and you are, see, it can be, even in the tone of your voice, did y'all hear yourselves? Like, surprised, surprised, yeah, but, but the word can be used appropriately in either way, right? That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. Jonah in his own mind is absolutely convinced that God is going to destroy Nineveh. He has no full understanding of God, what God is up to even as he preaches what God is going to do. And so the reaction comes as a surprise to Jonah, but not a good one. Not a, not a I, it's my birthday today, surprise, but a, my car broke down, it's going to cost me three grand, surprise, maybe even a little worse. The king hears the message. The king turns from his sins. The king orders the entire city to turn from their sins. And then we read this in verse 10 of chapter 3, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The Ninevites turned over, and so God turned around. All right, that's the play on words and the language here. And he does that because he's consistent with his nature as a forgiving and gracious God. And through the message of this prophet, Jonah, he brings his, this entire city to its knees. He has done in this moment exactly what Jonah by God's spirit had prophesied that he would do. He has reversed a once wicked people. And this event and Jonah's reaction to it reveals to us that Jonah still hasn't fully submitted his will to the Lord's will. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. How many of y'all ever got mad at God because it didn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out? I, I've been there. All right? This is one of the ways we know you were not yet fully submitted. It's when... Oh, 
when Jonah's hatred for the people is greater than his love for the one who created those people. That's how we know. When our hatred for people is greater than our love for the God who created those people. Up until this point, we've observed a lot about Jonah's sinful attitudes and actions, but as we get toward the end of this story, we see more deeply there's an underlying heart issue that fuels those actions. He's learned a lot about faith and obedience, but even in his obedience, there's not a lot of joy, is there? He moves over here. God gives him grace. He comes back. Then he goes where he's supposed to go, but this whole time he's just doing it out of drudgery. He's doing it out of duty and, and possibly even in the hope that he's going to actually get to see these people burn because that's what's driving him. That's the motivation of his heart. And there's no joy because there's not complete submission. How much of that do we see in, our, in the church today, in, the, in our culture today? So much of the polarization we've experienced over the last many years is driven by this. We hate more than we love. All the way down to our interpersonal relationships, the grudges we hold against one another. How many of us, like Jonah, are angry at God because we didn't get to see blood from somebody that we don't like? Yeah, every time I meet somebody that's excited about the return of the Lord because, and I quote, my enemies are going to be destroyed, I know I'm not talking to a Christian. I'm not. Well, that's kind of judgy. No, it's not. That's God's word. You cannot love God and hate your brother. I'm just a delivery man. We hate more than we love. This is the point at which we learn the fight against hatred takes a lifetime. Okay? See, I still, four consecutive stellar experiences. I still don't like the DMV. Right? That's a Joel problem. Right? It was a DMV problem years ago. Now it's a Joel problem. Right? Joel's got to get his heart right. How do we do that? Well, we learn fourthly, the battle is a lifelong battle. Verse 10 of chapter 4. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being at night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Now, this is a, a lecture that the Lord is giving to Jonah, and there's a background to it. Jonah gets angry because God hasn't killed his enemies, and so he goes outside the city, and he makes shelter for himself. And he has what we know in the 21st century as a pity party. Great thing about a pity party, you only have to plan for one. That's it. And so he's sitting there, and the Lord says, okay, he appoints a plant that grows up, and it provides shade. And, and Jonah, the Scripture tells us, is pleased by the plant, and he sits under it, and he enjoys it, and the Lord allows him to enjoy it for about 24 hours, and then he appoints a worm to eat the plant, to, to poison the plant, and cause it to wither. And then, then there's this scorching heat that comes down on him. And then God appoints a scorching east wind to make him even more miserable until Jonah finally says, just kill me. Just kill me now. Right? All of this is to reveal that Jonah has work to do. I mean, God's appointing all this stuff in his life so that he can reveal the reactions and then point to the reaction. He goes, yeah, you see, buddy, you still got some things to work on here. 
He's allowed hatred and self-centeredness to rule his disposition. And it's interesting to me, God does this not only in Jonah's life, but in yours as well. Look at the, if you just back up and look at the whole story here, God appoints a storm. God appoints a fish. God appoints a plant. God appoints a worm. God appoints scorching heat. God appoints a scorching east wind. This whole narrative is filled with his sovereign movements all around this prophet. And he's still the same God today. And he is appointing things in your life. And you can do what Jonah initially did, which is rail against him because of it, or rail against your environment or your experiences, or you can learn the lessons that he's seeking to teach from these things. Think about what it took for Jonah to get to this place. Now, let me tell you something about most preachers. I've been doing this for a while, and, and the thing we fear most outside of God. Like if we're not, this is why it, Proverbs tells us the fear of man is a snare. This job ain't for sissies because sometimes you got to tell people things they don't want to hear. And you just got to be clear with it. And then it, whatever, if they get mad at you or whatever, but because you're normal, you don't want to, you don't want people to be mad at you. Okay. And so if we're not fearing God appropriately, the thing we will fear most is rejection. Because we're normal. We're normal. That our message will be ignored. That, that you will be, honestly, even if I, if I do fear the Lord appropriately, my fear is the message gets ignored. You go outside these walls. You live in a foolish or sinful way. Your life gets worse. I love you. I want good for you. Okay? So, so for most preachers, that's, that's the disposition of our heart. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be ignored. Jonah hated these people so badly, he prayed they would ignore him. you got to get to a really dark place to get there. And when they didn't, he gets angry at God. Man, that's an awful lot of hate to carry around. And our world is filled with it and tries to deal with it in some of the strangest ways. I, I have this... I get, an e I get emails on a regular, regular basis now, not weekly, not even monthly really, but, but enough that I've started to notice a pattern. For some of you who work for large companies, and, and I've gotten for some of you, other churches that I've, I've related to or served in the past where somebody will write me and go, hey, I, I'm just, can you answer a question? And it's like, yeah, what, what, do you, what you got? There's these new policies at work, and they're just, they upset me, they offend me, they make me angry. I don't understand. I, I don't like this. This is like, like the whole world must be coming to an end or something. I just don't. And, and usually it comes with like, like, Pastor, I know you're a busy man. Would you mind if I, if I just forwarded you this manual? Do I have time to read a 40 some odd page policy manual for your company? No, I really don't. Um, but I always respond by saying, I, I, let me, let me take a guess. Tell me if I'm wrong. But I'm guessing it has three words somewhere on the front of it. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. How'd you know? Because that's the world we're living in right now. That, that's the world we're living in. And, and listen, those three words are not evil words. They're not inherently evil words. Our staff, some of our staff just went to a meeting at a sister church uh, in the area a few weeks ago. And we had a professor at Shepherd talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not in some 
uh, arbitrary, oppressive way, in some guilt-inducing way, but just in a, in a way of understanding that not everybody, you know, there's a, there's a Brad Paisley song that until I listened to it, I realized not everybody knows the words to a Ring of Fire or Amazing Grace, right? Not everybody is like me. Not everybody has. And so how, how is it that you can, especially in a world that's becoming increasingly more diverse, have your awareness raised of those people so that you can love them as Christ loved them. That's the way I interpreted that anyway. That's not wrong at all. But that's usually not what's happening with a DEI manual in a corporation. And so oftentimes, this is what I will tell people. Maybe this stops the emails coming, because maybe you were one of those people, you just got the manual, right? And you're thinking, I got to email Joel on, on, on Monday morning and ask him about this, and now you're going, oh, Okay, well then I won't, oh God, I won't get any more emails about it. That'd be great. Um, DEI, what is it? Well, I, my best assessment of it is it's a well-intentioned effort to try to bring fairness and egalitarianism into the workplace. I think all of, anybody with common sense should know if you can do the job, it shouldn't matter what color you are. It shouldn't matter what gender you are. It should be like, we get all that, Okay. But the policies that accompany some of this stuff, man, it, some of it is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Now, I'm not telling you to go out there and rebel against it and get fired. I'm just saying you, you, it's okay to recognize some of this. And let me tell you what it does. It, it will, if it gets too overbearing, it will create a transactional environment in the workplace that brings just enough detente to the workplace to keep it sterile and uncontroversial, but it will not do a thing to fix relationships and it never solves hatred. It drives it up, right? I mean, it just does. Now, that, that's not to say the, the policies themselves are not well-intentioned, okay? You gotta not see somebody who put that thing together as your enemy. It's well-intentioned. But it won't solve hatred. For those of us who follow Jesus, it's a proper love of God that leads reflexively to a love for people created in the image of God. And just like every other part of our lives, this is a process guided by progressive sanctification and often including some steps backwards. Some ignorance, some other things. You, you step in some stuff, some moments of regression. This, guys, because we're all different from each other, is a lifelong battle until we see Jesus. And over the next 12 to 18 months, this singular body ought to be prepared and locked and loaded to fight that nonsense with everything we've got because it's coming for you. Satan and his hatred, they're com it's coming for your heart. It's coming for your heart. And I don't have to lecture you about all the ways in our current culture that, God, that, that, the, that our enemy is going to bring that into our lives. We know. We know what those conduits are. And when God challenges our prejudices against each other, here's the other thing we forget sometimes. He is usually always working on the other side of that too in ways we don't know. When we go overseas together, when we go to a city together and we engage, it's, so we set ourselves, if, we, if you set yourself up as sort of the mini Messiah, you ain't learning a thing. You need to know that God's spirit was there way before you got there. He, he was there way before you got there. And that's the confidence that you can have. That's why Paul went into Corinth. 
Who in the world wants to go into Corinth, especially after you've been essentially laughed off of Mars Hill by the philosophers, and you're a little bit down anyway, and then God's going to send you into New Orleans on Mardi Gras and tell you to win those people to Jesus? But he does. He says, he says I have many people in this city. That's what sent Paul there. That's what will that's send you and me to the places where we have been called to go. And that's what sent, well, what should have sent Jonah instead of duty. What he did not likely know was that Assyria was, at the time of his call, as weak as it had been in a nation in its history. There was widespread famine. There were numerous revolts. And, and, and not to make too big of a comparison, but the convergence of all those things, kind of like the convergence of all the different layers of things that we have borne witness to over the last three or four years, made Nineveh more responsive to Jonah's message. And you know what? In that moment, the only thing standing in the way of repentance for Nineveh was Jonah's lack of, of ability and willingness to repent of his hatred for the Ninevites. That's it. You know the world is tired, don't you? The world is tired of some of this stuff. Do you really want to join them in that? Or do you want to give them something different? That's the call of God for you and me. And that's the message of Jonah, that we respond to God's invitation to exchange hatred for love. And then we get to watch God, not us, use that very simple, very humble posture to begin to reconcile the world. The world is looking for reconciliation. They may not, they may not know it even now, consciously. They may not admit it. People have gotta be getting tired of this stuff. Who will be the agent of reconciliation? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this day and for this well-known story and for what it teaches us. Father, I ask you to bless your people today. Lord, may our default be to start with our own hearts, to examine our own perceptions of others, and to be as you were, to reach out to people like us, to people not like us, to see everyone is created in the image and likeness of God. And Lord, today I pray that you would ground in our souls this inseparable twofold command of loving you and loving our neighbor. And Lord, if there's one here today who needs that initial reconciliation, Lord, so many people don't know about this because their own hearts haven't been reconciled to you. Maybe they've been in church all their life but they've never had a transformative relationship with Jesus. And so, Lord, there's, how in the world could they ever overcome when, when they haven't overcome their, their enmity with you? And so, Father, will you lead them to the cross today? And may we be faithful in helping them respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, 
I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.